We're going to focus a little attention today on our theme for the year, which is increase our faith. Uh, we've talked about that in, in a few different areas. We want to increase our faith to sacrifice. And so we've obviously spent the last uh, few weeks dealing with 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which are all about giving and giving to the Lord's work and giving to those in need. And we've been pushing our increase initiative, which will certainly require us to sacrifice if we're going to be able to expand our facilities and continue to develop our discipleship ministry here. We need faith to share, uh, faith to share the good news of Christ with others. It takes faith to do what, what John uh, illustrated in doing when we have people in our lives who are in need. It takes faith to, to continue to interact with them and to share with them the hope of Christ and point them back to Christ. Uh, we want to increase our faith so that we do that more. So we do that with greater boldness and greater courage. We need faith to stand. And uh, we'll actually be spending some time on this in the month of March and maybe even a little bit into April talking about how uh, the headwinds of culture are strong against us. And sometimes it's difficult to stand on the truth of God's Word. And we need increased faith to be able to do that. And then faith to stay in the storms of life, in the trials that we face, faith to stay with Jesus, to not run away and think there's somewhere else we can go, somewhere else that we can find refuge, but faith to stay with Jesus, and then faith to surrender really to all of these things. I've been encouraged, I've heard from several of you uh, how much you've appreciated the booklets that were given out earlier in the year, these 40 days of faith. We've been working through that very slowly in our family. I think we're maybe 11 or 12 deep. And yeah, that's, that's not great for the year, but uh, those of you who have not cracked that one yet, or maybe it's just collecting dust, I encourage you, dig into that. They don't take long to read. They really don't. And uh, again, many, many of you have come to me and said, hey, thank you for that. I've gotten emails. I, I just read this one today, and it's been encouraging, and so I encourage you, uh, dive into that, and then keep, keep diving into it. Um, there's, there's two instances um, in the Gospels where... Jesus speaks of great faith. There's two stories that we find. One of them is the story of the Roman centurion. Uh, the Roman centurion who has a servant who is sick, and he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, hey, can you heal my servant? And Jesus says, all right, let's go. And the centurion does something very strange at that point and says, mm, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. But I'm a man like you, and I tell people, do this and do that, and they do this and they do that, and all you have to do is say the word, Jesus, and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, your faith is great. And he was healed. The other is the story of a woman who has many names. She's called the, the Greek woman. She's called the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, she's called the Canaanite woman, depending on uh, which gospel you look at. And that's the story I want to look at with you today from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're going to start in verse 21. Jesus went away from there speaking of the Galilee region. And he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and they begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. And she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, please, or Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Should be like a gasp in the middle of that, right? And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Father, we ask now for your gracious blessing. God, your word is is living and it is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul, spirit, joint, marrow and discerns the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Jeremiah writes that your word is like a rock or a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces like a fire that quenches. And Lord, we're praying now that your word would be that effective in our hearts today. Spirit, that you would accomplish what you desire to accomplish in us in increasing our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we witness the great affection that a mother has for her child. Many of us have witnessed that in our own experiences with our own mothers or with our own children. We, we, we understand this, but here's a woman whose daughter has been afflicted by a demon. And so it says, Behold, this Canaanite woman from this region in Phoenicia, she came and here's what she's crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we're not provided with any of the details about what the oppressive demon is doing to her daughter. We're not provided with her age. We don't know really any of those things. We can look at other places in Scripture, and we do know that those who were often demon-oppressed were were prone to to seizure-like events. And one one father who comes to Jesus in a very similar sense, in Mark chapter 9, says says it throws him into the fire, and it throws him into the water, and it, it puts him in danger. And so whatever's going on, this mother is desperate to have something done for her daughter And she's willing to cause a scene in hopes of finding someone, something to heal her daughter. A couple of weeks ago, one of my my good friends, Nathan Beal, many of you know Nathan. He's pastor of Emmanuel Baptist in Nixa. He's been here for different events and participated with us. Uh, His son had to have an eye surgery, something they knew that was coming, and both eyes will have to have this particular surgery. They had to take him to St. Louis to get it done very specialized thing. But it's also something that insurance won't cover. And so it's a procedure that will, will better his son's life, but it's going to cost thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, as you can imagine. But it's what a parent does for their child, for the betterment of their life. We'll go to those things. I, I've often threatened my children if you keep doing that and you hurt yourself, I'm not taking you to the ER. Maybe you've said that similar thing, right? Um, 
if push came to shove, faith would shove me with them to the ER, and it would have to happen. But no, we hurt when our kids hurt. We, we feel that pain in an intense way. When our kids are sick, we, we feel sick. When they're hurting, we're hurting right alongside with them, and that's what's going on in this mama. She brings her hurt to Christ, her daughter to Jesus. But why would she come to Jesus? Why does she approach Him? We, we might assume that she's already tried other avenues. She's in this region of, of, of Tyre and Sidon. It's a, it's a pagan region. It is not part of Israel. If you, you look at your maps, you'll see Tyre and Sidon are in a different region of Phoenicia. And so it's pagan. It's not connected to Yahweh. It's not connected to Judaism in any way. Just a sidebar, why is Jesus here? Well, things were starting to heat up quite a bit in the Galilee region. If we're talking about threat level, he's at maybe a level orange with the Pharisees. They're ready to kill him now. And he just needs some time away. And so he goes to this particular region in search of some rest. But now she comes to Jesus, even in this strange land. Why would she come to him? Because she believes in him. Why do we go to Jesus? Why do we turn to Him in prayer? Because we believe. Because there's a measure of faith. and It's what drives us to Him. We believe in Him. She has some measure of trust. How do we know this? Well, she knows that He is the giver of mercy. Why? Because she says, have mercy on me. She knows that He is the one who can accomplish this. It's very similar to David's cry in Psalm 51 where he begins this prayer of repentance. Have, have mercy on me, O God. She comes and pleads for that same mercy. She also recognizes him to be Lord. Lord, and, and, and that there, there's an argument that could be made here that, that she just recognizes him as an authority. That's a, a word that's versatile. But we cannot deny the next reference. Son of David. What does that mean? It means unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. She, she's appealing to what she knows of the prophecies regarding the, the Christ, the Messiah who would come into the world, and she recognizes Jesus to be Him, the, the promised One, the anointed One, the One who would deliver, the One who would save. I was studying through this. It brought me back to that great verse in Revelation 22 where Jesus is speaking. And He says, I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And here's what He says about Himself. I am the root and the descendant of David. He's both the root and the descendant, the branch of David. She recognizes Him to be this. She knows Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus can heal her daughter. Shockingly, as the woman cries out to Jesus, He doesn't respond. He hears her. He just ignores her. But she persists. 
At some point, the disciples even come and they've had enough and they ask Jesus in their own sense of desperation, send her away. She's crying out after us. And, and it's not known where they saying, hey, heal her daughter, be done with her, or just get rid of her. We don't know exactly what they had in their intents in asking Jesus to send her away. Could have been embarrassed by this person following them. This person yelling after them. Probably more annoyance. Made me think of the instance where Paul and Silas were in Philippi and the, the woman was crying out after them. What were the words? Uh, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Uh, over and over. And it says, and Paul, after many days of this, was greatly annoyed. And he finally turns around and he, he casts the demon out of her. And that ends up getting them thrown into prison and we know the rest of the story as it unfolds. Well, in verse 24, we read Jesus' seemingly cold response to the disciples. Send her away. What does he say? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And at the moment that Jesus is making this declaration, the woman is positioning herself now in front of Jesus and kneeling in front of him and says, Lord, help me. She's not being deterred. And if you thought verse 24 seemed cold, buckle up for verse 26. Because in verse 26, Jesus answers her now directly, first time He's really speaking to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So first, He seems to rudely dismiss her because she's not a Jew. And now he likens her and it seems any other non-Jewish people to dogs. Now I've had bad days where I've wanted to treat people like this, but Jesus? Is he having a bad day? What's going on? Let me explain a couple things. First, Jesus' focus is on Israel. There's nothing untrue about the statement that he makes. Because all of the prophecies are clear. The plan is clear that Jesus came to Israel. And then what would happen beyond Jesus? The church would be born. And we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that, that they were called to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world. It had to start somewhere. And Jesus' statement here is true. Yet we obviously see Him minister to others who are not of Israel. We obviously see His heart for plenty of others as well. Second, there's two words for dogs that Jesus could have chosen from. One is more of a scavenger type dog. The kind of dog you don't want around. Like a, like a hyena kind of dog or a coyote or something like that. You don't want that thing around. The other is more of a household pet. Friendly, domesticated, part of the family in this illustration, and we have to understand that, this is an illustration that Jesus is using. We don't take all of these points to their furthest degree. Jesus uses the word here for a pet. Furthering his first statement, that's the point of what he envisions here. That I'm here to feed the children of Israel, not to throw my food down here to the dogs. That's why we didn't have a dog for a long time. I was like, I can't even afford to feed my kids. Why am I going to bring another thing in here to feed? And now I'm still wondering, why did I bring this other thing in here to feed? 
Well, she responds to this without missing a beat. She uses Jesus' illustration and says, Yes, Lord, you are right. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Brilliant. That's illustrated every meal in my house. If you've got a dog, it's illustrated every meal in your house. They're there at your feet, licking up what fell. She doesn't take offense at Jesus. She doesn't give up. She's determined. She knows that Jesus is her daughter's only hope. And she again makes a declaration here that is just incredibly profound. This time declaring that even though Jesus' ministry and His focus is is to Israel, that His grace, here's what she recognizes and realizes, that His grace is so much bigger than that, that it will overflow. And it will move beyond Israel. And she's just saying, I just need a crumb to fall. So how does Jesus respond? Does he scoff? Does he dismiss her? Does he turn and walk away? Does he wearily give in, just get off my case? No. Here's what he says. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. He declares that her faith was great. Their faith is, is, is large. The kind of faith that we desire to have, there's something that's increased about it. And it's really at this point in the story that we realize what's happening. Jesus' indifference it was, it was a test. We understand Jesus' heart is not indifferent towards the needy. That's, that's not His nature. But there's a test. He was testing her faith, probably even testing the disciples' faith a little bit too as they're watching this unfold. God uses a variety of means to test our faith, doesn't He? I want you to understand, and it's important for us to understand, James 1 teaches this, that He doesn't tempt us to sin, but He does test us and test our faith. Where does temptation come from? It comes from our own sinful desires within. And it's how we respond to those tests. Will I respond to this test in faith, or will I respond to this test by giving in to the temptation to sin in that moment? God tests our faith. He does it to stretch us, to strengthen us. We have to understand this. He loves us too much to allow us to linger in stagnation. And oh, would we ever linger in stagnation, wouldn't we? We want ease. We want comfort. But He brings tests into our life because He loves us. Because he knows we need to grow. 
and they'll help to conform us into the image of Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1. <clears throat> James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in dispersion. Greetings. Verse 2, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can we do that? Verse 3, for you know or because you know. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God intends to use the trials of life to test our faith so that our faith grows, so that we become the mature followers of Jesus that we're called to be. And because of this testing, sometimes Jesus, he might seem indifferent. Have you ever been in those seasons of life? Have you ever been in the trials where Jesus seemed indifferent? I mean, you're pleading your heart out, and it doesn't seem like you're getting much response. The disciples, don't you care that we're dying out here? We've all been in those seasons, haven't we? Seasons of sickness, relational struggles, things that are going on, seasons of financial difficulty. Sometimes Jesus uses the strong headwinds of culture to test our faith. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to spend some time talking about that in the coming weeks, but as we resist those, those headwinds that move against us, what happens? We grow. We're stronger. It's the illustration of the tree, right? The tree has to, has to feel the wind. Remember that? They built that biodome in the desert and they were wondering what was happening with their trees. Trees kept, kept falling over and they kept having issues and they kept dying. Somebody finally realized there's no resistance on the trees. There's no wind. The trees need the wind. They need the wind to, to push them and it, it caused them to dig their roots deeper and it caused them to, to develop and grow and thicken in the right ways. They learn to resist. Sometimes... Our Savior allows Satan to plant seeds of doubt in our minds and to challenge us. Sometimes this comes by means of our own culture, the wisdom of man. And we hear, oh, that, that sounds right. That, that, that scientific truth sounds right and it, it doesn't seem to line up with Scripture. Or we think we know better than God. We think we would do a better job than God. And those seeds of doubt begin to grow. God, why didn't you give me that job? 
I really needed that job. Or God, that was the place I was supposed to live. That was the life I was supposed to have. And you didn't give that to me. You're not wise. You're not smart. I'm smarter than you. We wouldn't say it out loud, but we actually believe it in our anger and bitterness. Those are meant to be tests that strengthen our faith. I thought of this one as well. And it was a few weeks ago, we were at our small group at our house and we're reading through a psalm together and Mitzi didn't like the version I was using. And so she's like, don't you have a King James Bible around here somewhere? And so I went, I went and she talked about how dusty it was and I pulled, I pulled my Bible off that was the, the Bible that was given to me as a senior in high school. And uh, that's always a, a fun experience because it's got all sorts of markers. It's a Bible that I used for, for probably a decade and a half straight, maybe a little bit more. And uh, after I think we had used that, I, I kind of looked back and in the front, my, my pastor, uh, who hadn't really been my pastor that long because uh, he was pretty new to our church, he had written something in the front of that Bible. And his first line was, Joshua, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. And you might recognize those lines because that's what Jesus said to Peter. Satan desires to sift you as wheat. And that's certainly what he desires for us, isn't it? Sifting is not a pleasant process. It involves tearing and ripping and being tossed around. And What we have to understand in those seasons of sifting, and some of you are there right now, it's not out of God's control. How we know that is we go back to the book of Job. And we're reminded that everything Job went through, which was a lot of sifting, which was a lot of seeds of doubt that were planted in his mind, using friends and using his own, his own wicked, unrighteous heart in the end. Who did Satan have to go to to get permission to do those things? He had to go to God. Satan can sift us as wheat, but we understand that he is on a leash. It's why there's a promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says uh, that, that all of the trials that we face are common to man, but God is faithful and He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape or a way through. Because who's ultimately in control of all of these things? God is. But Satan is sifting some of us right now. There's some families that are hurting, grieving. Sins being exposed. And Satan desires to use that to steal, kill, and destroy. Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Jesus' desire is to use that for what purpose? To increase your faith. To increase your faith. And so as you face those things in your life, face them recognizing who Jesus is. How do we, 
How do we have great faith like this woman? What do we do as we navigate through the sifting and the the winds that are pushing against us? Number one, you have to ground yourself in the Word of God. Why do we always come back to this? Because where else would we go? These are the words of eternal life. This woman was grounded at least enough sufficiently in the Word of God, wasn't she? She knew the truth. She spoke the truth to Christ. She knew who He was. How do we get to know Jesus? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Our faith grows. As we, as we dig into God's Word, we, we, we gain understanding of the promises that He makes to us. Promises that are founded not on the words of some guy who lived 2,000 years ago, wrote them down and died, but words that are founded upon the, the promises of, of the very revelation of God Himself and His character. And these are the anchors that, that when the storms are, are blowing, uh, when the earth is shaking, they're the, the, the pillars that drive deep into the ground that hold us steady so that our house doesn't fall. We need to be in God's Word. Ground yourself in the truth of Scripture. Second, pray. What does she do? She goes to Jesus. What is that? That's, that's prayer. We go to Jesus. Her faith isn't great because she's great. Her faith is great because it's in Jesus. Place your faith in Him. Keep going back to Jesus. Where else do you go? I've had this conversation with, with many of you. When we, when we look out at the world, people who, who don't have a relationship with Christ, people who don't know the character of our God, where do they go? How tragic is that? They're, they're grounded in nothing. But how much more tragic is it that, that I, a person who knows where to go, I don't. I try to figure it out on my own. Buy another guide idiot book from the store and figure out how to do this myself. Can't remember the name of those books. Idiot's Guides to whatever. Yeah. We need to go to Jesus. It says so much to jump back, crossing a lot of passages here. When, when Jesus says, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. That's not a very hope-filled message, is it? But do you remember what he says after that? But I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. 
That's why we go to Jesus. We go to Him with persistence as well. There's plenty of stories in the Scriptures that could illustrate that. But this is a great one, isn't it? She keeps coming. She keeps taking the blows. She's not taking offense. She's not going to quit. She's not going to give up. He's her only hope. We go, we pray for wisdom, we pray for grace, we pray for power. We pray that He would deliver us from evil. We pray whatever we need to pray in desperation. Third, we don't find this particularly in the story, but it's a key component for us who are followers of Jesus in this present age. How do we have great faith? We gather. We gather with people of the Word and people of prayer. Because we're not meant to do this alone. We're not created to do this alone. We need the church. When my faith is weak, I need to be around people whose faith is strong. And when their faith is weak, they need to be around maybe me who in that moment whose faith is strong. Right? Have you ever had that experience? I think you probably have where you had a Sunday where you're just like, I don't even want to go today. Like your faith is that weak, you've been beat up that much, and you, you come and you gather, and you're around God's people, and you hear their prayers, and you hear the truth that's being uh, sung in praise to God, and you hear His Word, and you have conversations, and what happens to your faith in that, that hour and 15 minutes of time? It increases. Same is true for our small groups as we have opportunity to gather together in even more intimate settings. Small groups are sometimes a little more um, emergency related because they fall in the middle of the week, right? Sometimes the weekend can be, ah, it's kind of easy. I'm in the weekend. Storms of life prevail oftentimes in the week and we need that interaction with God's people. Friends, whatever our loving Father brings into our lives this year, whatever He's already brought into your life this year, my encouragement today is increase your faith to stay. Don't forsake Him. Don't, don't try to go somewhere else. Certainly don't try to fix it on your own. And we get into mess after mess there. Don't forsake him because I assure you he won't forsake you. I love that line from Spurgeon where he says, when you can't see his hand, when you can't see what he's doing with his hand, trust his heart. Because we do know that. Today I want to invite you to prayer. I want to invite you to boldly approach the throne with me, much like this precious mother did 2,000 years ago. Her burden was for her daughter. Desperate. What's your burden for? What are you desperate to see God do? Maybe it's a present storm in your life. Maybe it's something else that's going on. What are you desperate to see God do? And if nothing comes to mind, then I challenge you, increase your faith. We should all have things that are happening in our mind, things that we want to see God do, things that are bigger than us. What are you burdened for? I'm burdened for our increased initiative. I'm burdened for our building.
God's provision, our faithfulness. I'm burdened, as I just mentioned earlier, for our church. Satan is attacking. People are hurting. And I'm desperate to see what Christ desires to accomplish through those trials.